produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Something you may not know about me. I was born and raised in a small town in Iowa. Rural areas have always had a very special place in my heart because of all that. One thing about rural areas, with the exception of some wealthy enclaves, they tend to be underserved and under-resourced. Not to put too fine a point on it, poor rural areas get neglected. But people are people. There's substance use, both the legal and illegal kinds, and the kind of problems that can come along with substance use. Unfortunately, those problems will get exacerbated by the lack of services and resources. I mean, that's kind of a big part of the reason why a lot of us leave. But enough about me. On this edition of Free Culture Radio, we're going to look at substance use in rural areas. First, the Rural Drug Addiction Research Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln co-hosted the 2023 Symposium on Substance Use Research on November 8th and 9th. Let's hear a bit. Dr. Sheila Vicaria is the Deputy Director of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. On November 8th, Dr. Vicaria participated in a panel discussion on health impacts of state policies, drug decriminalization, and service access. No, we at the Drug Policy Alliance were the ones to work very closely with Oregonians to introduce the ballot measure to decriminalize the personal possession of drugs in Oregon. And I just wanted to jump in that, yes, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the NYU researchers who published their findings found that there was that that the implementation of Oregon's Measure 110 did not lead to any more significant increases in overdose deaths. But we have to acknowledge that overdose deaths did go up in Oregon as they did in many other states around the country. Their analyses though did not find that compared to synthetic controls that overdose death went up any more dramatically after the implementation of Measure 110. So we have to kind of also just be mindful of how we talk about the research, right? Um, and I think that um, Talking about overdose death rates and decriminalization is an interesting way to talk about potential impacts of policy change on overdose deaths, but we have to acknowledge that our drug overdose deaths are driven by our drug supply, um, an issue that is not addressed by the simple decriminalization of drug possession alone. Um, and it gets at some of what I had been talking about earlier, how criminalization of users increases their risk of um, overdose, oftentimes because of their own disruptions in access to the supply or their access to treatment or other supports, but we just have to also acknowledge that like the ways in which we measure the metrics of success of Measure 110 have to be related to what decriminalization can do, right? So I was part of a research team that released a paper um, just a few months ago as well about how first and foremost, we were able to show statistically significant reductions in drug arrests following the implementation of one Measure 110 beyond the COVID-related reductions that were happening in that state. And so again, we have to remember when we measure the metrics, uh, when we use metrics to measure 110, we have to use the metrics that actually match the intervention. And expanding access and funding to treatment was another big part of implement, you know, what we wanted to do with Measure 110. And part of that was allocating over $300 million in historic funding towards building out the treatment recovery, harm reduction, and health service infrastructure of the state. And the ripple effect of those changes is gonna be taking time for us to see in terms of <clears throat> the impacts on those communities and what those services were able to deliver. So 
part of it is that we never asked criminalization for immediate results to show us it was working, yet we are holding these policy interventions in which we are changing our approach to these very rapid response kind of outcomes and metrics that is supposed to somehow solve things, and that the knee-jerk response for some opponents is to return back to the status quo, which was also killing and harming people and not investing in the infrastructure whatsoever. So, I mean, I think the other thing that I think is really important to name is that even saying that syringes are legal in a jurisdiction doesn't necessarily mean they are accessible, available, distributed in ways that are meaningful to people who need them, are needs-based rather than one-to-one based, um, and that the equipment is the supplies that people want. You know, we look at the latest CDC HIV outbreaks that were driven by injections-related harms, and they were in Indiana and in West Virginia, a state that can tout that they have legalized syringe access, right? But what happened in these jurisdictions where the outbreaks happened, for instance, in Morgantown and Huntington was the sheriff said we need proof we, we need names we need proof that these people were referred to treatment they can only get retractable syringes there can only be a one-to-one exchange so um yes criminalization of syringes of course is going to make it challenging in a state where you cannot legally operate a program where people are afraid of getting arrested but i would also just like to note that even saying your state have even states that have so-called legal access to syringes or legally operated syringe exchange programs when they are put under such tight constraints and when participants fear for their confidentiality their privacy um, more surveillance um, and when they're not getting the supplies that they need at the scale in which they need um, we also are going to see a lot of the same problems emerge One of the things that we at DPA are really interested in in terms of advancing policy relevant research is um, uplifting the voices of communities who are impacted by criminalization and who use drugs themselves. A really big effort that we are trying to advance in our network and among researchers that we collaborate with is the meaningful engagement of people who use drugs as collaborators, co-conspirators, as co-investigators, as co-presenters. Um, and co-designers in the studies about issues that affect their lives. The kinds of questions that come top down from a researcher may be intellectual exercises, but really the research that needs to be conducted is about the living and real material conditions of people's lives on the ground and the kinds of correlations and analyses and connections that only they see in terms of how it plays out in the risk environments that they live in and the access to services and the ways in which they face and experience these systems um, on a day-to-day basis. so I would say that the most policy relevant research that we can do meaningfully as researchers is research in which we follow the lead of impacted communities and uplift their expertise and help build their research skill sets to become collaborators in research about the conditions that they are living in, because it's they who have, you know, those who are closest to the problems are closest to the solutions. And it's really easy to, to want to keep um doing a study based on what you can imagine when the next time you see an RFP or, you know, a request for funding proposals. But, you know, bringing communities involved in these issues about the kinds of questions they want to ask and the kinds of answers that they propose or believe that they will see will be really, really important. That was Dr. Sheila Vicaria, Deputy Director of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. She was taking part in a panel discussion on health impacts of state policies, drug decriminalization, and service access on November 8th at the 2023 Symposium on Substance Use Research, which was co-hosted by the Rural Drug Addiction Research Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. 
On this edition of Free Culture Radio, we're looking at substance use in rural areas. Let's look now toward the northernmost part of Abiyala, the place currently referred to as Canada, specifically the Canadian province with the highest proportion of rural residents, Nova Scotia. On November 13th, the National Safer Supply Community of Practice held another of its brilliant research spotlight webinars, this one entitled More of the Same but Worse Than Before, a qualitative study of the challenges encountered by people who use drugs in Nova Scotia, Canada during COVID-19. Let's hear from one of the panelists. Sheila Wildman is an associate professor of law at Dalhousie University and associate director of the Dalhousie Health Justice Institute. I wanted to start with the human context. I'm really grateful uh, to Emily for putting that photo um, up with this background on the losses. So we're starting with the context of um, of just, you know, incredible loss. And uh, I don't see who is all around the table here at this webinar, but I'm always, you know, so mindful that we come together around having lost people uh, who we care about. Um, you know, many of us have come, have, have brushed up against, uh, you know, real personal peril. And so these are um, topics that you sometimes lose that when you start with the you know the statistics and the law but that's um but it's also the enormity of the loss that we're starting with on this slide so we've just given you a few um stats uh from canada so recently uh recent stats on the number of deaths um so starting with between 216 and, and march 2023 <clears throat> so it's <clears throat> rising up to almost 40,000 opioid toxicity deaths um, and so that's at the center of the um, the project that uh, Emily and and Matt and them uh, got started with is that is those losses in the big picture. Then just moving to most recently, um, this is just it's it's not slowing down. So this this year, January to March, 2023. So just the first part of this year, um, already nearly 2,000 deaths. That comes to 21 per day, 81 percent of which involving fentanyl. There's also um, some important you know, data coming up around um, mixed substance use and, and the toxic supply. So the fact that almost 50% of opioid toxicity deaths in this last uh, period have also involved a stimulant is really important to keep in mind. And that's something that came out recently in our own jurisdiction in Nova Scotia. Uh, there was comment on uh, cocaine use also being, you know, involved in some of the toxicity um, and overdose deaths. Uh, and so it just adds another element um, uh, for us to be mindful of as we uh, wrap our heads around what what is happening. Uh, and then just to go back to the start of COVID-19, which is around the time when this project is really focusing. So what shifted, what changed with COVID-19? It started with reporting on, again, statistics. So the number of deaths, um, going up in BC, um, several jurisdictions reported higher rates of fatal overdoses um, and other harms uh, as the pandemic got started. I see in you know, Ontario, there was 25% increase in suspected drug-related deaths between March and May 2020. Uh, in BC, uh, it was uh, in the first eight months, uh, they surpassed the total for all of the year before. So death rates going up. Right with COVID nineteen and the why, uh, the why um, to that is partly what is um, uh, motivating the study uh, that um, that we did. Certainly, there's a whole set of um, hypotheses and and work that's been coming out substantiating. So you know the increasingly toxic 
unregulated um, supply, uh, lots of different barriers to access to harm reduction uh, services, um, treatment. I'm just reading from something here from the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, um, as well as the physical distancing requirements leading to more people using alone. So that's the background of loss and the enormity um, of loss. But I want to turn to the legal framework. Um, and the first thing we have to I start, well, what we have to start with is criminalization. And this, the quote I pulled is actually, you can, if you just Google this quote, you'll find a whole lot of people in a whole lot of contexts um, in different jurisdictions saying the same thing, that the war on drugs has failed. So criminalization, use of uh, criminalization and incarceration as a response um, to uh, uh, substance use problems um, and uh certainly the kind of um, epidemic of, of death that we've seen uh, is has been a failure and yet um, the war continues and so that's the context really that we're um, that we start with so it's roundly recognized um, that criminalization is doing far more harm than good uh, but we have to add to our analysis lack of safe supply and all the barriers to safe supply, um, including legal barriers, um, as we think about how to unpick this problem. I just wanted to make mention of the sort of the flip side or the the other side of criminalization. So once you pass through criminalization into incarceration, is what I'm thinking um, that we feel even can I say even more intensely, uh, but it, with a different kind of intensity. Um, the problems that we're talking about here, so barriers to access to, to harm reduction and to safe supply are only compounded and intensified uh, once one finds oneself in, in jail. Um, as mentioned, I'm co-chair of East Coast Prison Justice, and I've just given a link to a, a paper, I think maybe when I first met you, Matt, I'm not sure, it might I think I met you before that, but that was the first thing certainly that we sat down and worked on writing. And I was looking at the date of it just uh, earlier, and it's March 4th, 2020. It was just before the whole, uh, you know, COVID state of emergency came down. And that's when we published this thing that criticized uh, lack of access to OAT therapy and other kinds of supports in, in jails. In Nova Scotia, we have a policy actually that uh, is still in place, which says you can't start OAT treatment unless you've been on it in community already. Uh, that's, you know, once you enter jail. So a whole host of things we could say there, but it's part of uh, the package of criminalization and incarceration and the kind of, um, uh, just the the intensification of harm that comes with that. Um, so there have been some partial responses uh, to the harms of criminalization or to the you know, sort of um, uh, recognition of um, the way that criminalization contributes to harm since COVID-19. And next slide will give a sense of what those are. Uh, and I'm going to let Matt and Emily talk more about um, the, the claim that we're making that it haven't been enough. Um, and I think we can recognize, given the intensity of the continuing deaths, that these responses haven't been enough. So we start just as a little bit of background with assumptions that were made uh, under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in March of 2020. Uh, and these have recently recently been extended to 2026. Uh, so what were these exemptions? They allow pharmacists, as it says there on the slide, to renew and extend and transfer um, narcotic prescriptions. Doctors, physicians can verbally prescribe and uh, 
pharmacists can also deliver or designate someone to deliver medications um, to folks. So these were attempts to respond to the kinds of barriers that were arising during COVID-19 as pharmacy services were slowing, uh, shutting down or slowing down and people were having to social distance or uh, stay at home and all of that. So these were partial measures. Um, and again, I'm going to leave it to Emily and Matt to talk about how uh, people responded to those in our um, uh, in our study. Uh, BC also has um, more recently uh, under um, been granted an exemption by Health Canada, again, under the same act, which amounts to partial decriminalization. It's effective. This exemption is effective again until 2026 or January of 2026. Um, and it, uh, under this, um, adults uh, are not to be arrested or charged for possession of small amounts of certain specified substances. So opioids, that includes heroin, morphine, fentanyl, uh, crack and powder co cocaine, um, methamphetamines, and MDMA. Uh, so if one has 2.5 grams or less, one is not subject to arrest or criminal charges uh, and the drugs aren't seized. Um, so that's the partial decriminalization piece coming out of BC. And uh, from what I understand, you know, the response is that this is one important move. Again, it's uh, and it's positive and it's to be recognized as important, uh, but it also has its own serious limitations, the limit to 2.5 grams. Uh, so anything beyond that is still criminalized. And uh, as I understand it, it's rare that um, drugs consumed uh, by folks exist in that amount. Uh, second, splitting and sharing drugs isn't covered and that can amount to trafficking uh, and a charge uh, for that. That discourages people from using together potentially and last, um, uh, as I uh, understand it, benzodiazepines aren't included, um, and that's a big limitation as well. So last thing I wanted to add uh, goes to sort of future of legal stuff, and I, I don't want to dwell on this, but just to you know put a plug in for the Caput um, uh, litigation, which is um, has been started in the BC Supreme Court, as I understand it, which goes to um, decriminalization based on some charter arguments. And Martha Jackman, I've given a plug to uh, an article, which I really should have put in the, um, the book that this is published in, but you can find it on SSRN if you just Google this uh, title, and you'll see a really neat um, argument on decriminalization of possession as a charter right and a constitutional imperative. That was Sheila Wildman, Associate Professor of Law at Dalhousie University and Associate Director of the Dalhousie Health Justice Institute, speaking November 13th on a panel entitled More of the Same but Worse Than Before, a qualitative study of the challenges encountered by people who use drugs in Nova Scotia, Canada during COVID-19, which was hosted by the National Safer Supply Community of Practice. This is Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Let's hear a bit more from that Safer Supply webinar. Matthew Bond is the Communications Manager for the Canadian AIDS Society. Yeah, so just a little bit more uh, background on the overdose epidemic that we've been dealing with. Um, and, and there's a really cool paper that was published in the International Journal of Drug Policy in, in 2017 by uh, Dan Sicarone that uh, describes kind of the three waves of the overdose dose epidemic and there's actually a, a fourth wave which uh, Sheila talked about uh, about stimulants and and, poly, and poly substance use but it the the first wave was started with prescription opioids and the second wave was um started, ended up being heroin you know more of a 
kind of a, a stronger uh, opioid. And now we've seen a really big wave, a big increase in um, fentanyl. And so we're kind of in like a full circle where we're trying to go back to the prescription opioids so we can have a, a safe supply of drugs for people because, you know, with synthetic drugs, you got underground chemists making um drugs with precursors bought on the internet and they just don't have very much chemistry background and you know people are just really trying anything to make some money and it's um killing a lot of people you know COVID-19 obviously um interrupted a lot of um harm reduction services and you know addiction medicine services and overdose events increased so I can see that also being another wave of the overdose crisis that could probably be, you know, we're seeing more and more deaths. Um, it, it was harder to get a lot of the precursors um, mailed in. So a lot of a lot of the drugs, the way that I always heard it, like before COVID, you know, like a lot of the, the fentanyl that was being made was pretty smooth. You had a lot of like the same batches were being made, but then once... Uh, the supply was interrupted. It was harder to get those precursors, and, and people were kind of just cutting it with whatever they could, using you know benzodiazepine, xylazine, um, and those are obviously are very harmful substances. And I think it's become a trend. You know, back in the day, they would cut drugs with you know caffeine and you know less harmful substances but more expensive and now these precursors are are very cheap and um easy to obtain but they're very harmful and also with the COVID-19 pandemic you know a lot of the stay-at-home orders uh cause people to use drugs alone uh thankfully we've had you know innovative services like the national overdose response uh service to you know call somebody or you know spotting somebody online um so people have adapted to try to keep people safe you know i know i've used like many different services online to stay safe and you know i'd give my address to somebody i would use if i overdosed they'd have my address they'd have contact number with somebody um with naloxone that they could administer quicker and i used to do that from someone in seattle so like there's quite a bit away um but then you know like these things actually are effective and um you know as the health canada exemptions were a great starting point they're they're certainly not enough in terms of beating the overdose crisis so what is safe supply? And, you know, this is uh, essentially, you know, we talk about many different themes in, in this uh, paper, but the the main kind of theme is what is safe supply in, in Halifax. And this was the first qualitative paper in Halifax on safe supply. So, you know, when we talk about safe supply, we use mainly we use Caput's definition, which um was published in February 2019, and it's a legal and regulated supply of drugs with mind and body altering properties that were traditionally offered illegally. So, you know, that could be cocaine, that could be heroin, 
Uh, that could be prescription drugs that weren't prescribed to you, you know, a wide range of psychoactive substances and safer supplying, which is now, you know, um, why we're here today is, you know, a new trend to, to start to give people a safe supplier. And I was actually just watching a documentary last night on one in Vancouver uh, and Mark, Tind- Mark Tindall was uh, saying, you know, like, it's not about the, the the toxic it's about what people have to do to get these toxic drugs that, that really causes a lot of the harms in their life and then the the toxic drugs are the icing on the cake so we're at the point where we need to just give people drugs to keep them safe and then they can get housing and they can get employment and they can you know start to live their life again and i thought it was a really like really nice comment from him and mark uh, is a big pioneer in, in safe supply and you know as the federal government supports uh, a safe supply uh, they don't really have a plan for sustainable uh, safe supply programs not as not that i'm aware of they recently just raided Dolph, which you know was um, offering a compassion club uh, which is, you know, a non-medicalized safe supply where people buy their drugs on the dark web or buy their drugs from the supply, test them and distribute them at uh, a cheaper cost. And the and the federal government, to my knowledge, they always just said, okay, well, you know, doctors can prescribe uh, a safe supply if they want to, but that's just not a sustainable way to scale up programs and i think people need more than just safe supply they need wraparound care they need you know wound care they need hiv and hepatitis c care you know people are dealing with all kinds of health and social issues that they need support with so safe uh safe supply or safer supply versus oat and i always say safe supply is oat 2.0 because it's still a very medicalized model um, you know, you still kind of got to go to the pharmacy every day. You got to go see your doctor every day. Um, you know, there's many, many benefits of safe supply that saves lives, but there are a lot of barriers to implementing them. And, you know, so I think a lot of doctors and, and you know, there's this huge narrative. There's a, like such a, a backlash on safe supply right now uh, around, con, you know, conservative ideology, just, you know, wanting to take away people's uh, free drugs. But, you know, the evidence speaks for itself that safe supply, you know, isn't causing any, um, isn't causing any of these deaths. It's caused by the toxic drugs. And, but a lot of the critics worry about diversion you know, there's this big narrative in, in BC right now that there's a lot of Dilaudids and, and, you know, a lot of youth are using Dilaudids. But, you know, I know as a youth, I used Dilaudids, so I don't think it was anything to do with safe supply. Youth use drugs, right? So I think it's just um, it's just a, a tactic that, um, you know, that can be used to try to stop implementing these programs. And, you know, OAT just doesn't work for everybody. You know, there's there's all kinds of different options. I've been on every type of OAT, methadone, buprenorphine, cyblocade, uh, slow-release oil morphine, safe supply. And, you know, I just haven't found one that worked for me. And so, you know, it's um, uh, 
we need to start offering people the drugs that they need. And, you know, at least in BC now, they do offer um, different uh, variations of fentanyl for people that are medicalized. But it's, from my understanding, it's still not meeting the, the needs of what's being made on the street. That was Matthew Bond, Communications Manager for the Canadian AIDS Society, speaking November 13th on a panel entitled More of the Same but Worse Than Before, a qualitative study of the challenges encountered by people who use drugs in Nova Scotia, Canada during COVID-19, which was hosted by the National Safer Supply Community of Practice. And for now, that's it. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. And you make it all possible. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long.